Hi, this is Rena Mason, author of The Evolutionist, and you're listening to HP Lovecast Podcast. Hello, and welcome to HP Lovecast Presents Transmissions, where we collect brief interviews by creators with new or upcoming projects. Uh, we open with a guest reading an excerpt from their project and follow up with the interview proper. Transmissions posts on the last day of each month. I am Nicholas Dyack. I'm a pop culture scholar of peplum films, industrial music, horror studies, and I'm the editor of The New Peplum from McFarland. And I am Michelle Brittany, editor of James Bond in Popular Culture and the Bram Stoker-nominated Horror in Space. I write on all things pop culture with a special emphasis on horror, fantasy, and spy genres. Nicholas and I co-edited Horror Literature from Gothic to Postmodern, also from McFarlane. On today's episode, we'll be interviewing David Rose, the author of the new novella Lovecraft's Iraq, and Jonathan Mayberry, who has a new novel, Kagan, that is kicking off a brand new series. Our first guest is David Rose, who is the author of Lovecraft's Iraq, that was published by Screaming Banshee Press in March. Bram Stoker Award winner and prior guest Lee Murray states, quote, Military hell from a veteran who's lived it. Rose's Lovecraft's Iraq is slick, cinematic, and surreal. An action-adventure of the heroes who give their all, even when there's no winning, end quote. David is also the author of No Joy, a Recon Marine's Tales of Self-Destruction, Amden Bog, a novel in stories, and Lucky Joe. Welcome, David. They'd slept the day away as best they could. Rigger's tape and cardboard had been working as blinds, but blackout did little to prevent the penetration of yelling shitheads, off-day Stygians barging in to be cast out and cursed, or the thunderous boom of howitzers awakening and reawakening answering calls of men already negotiating whatever the hell may be out there. Stygian 2-3 slept, then they didn't. Then a watch's alarm pulled them up from half-dreams and into their gear. Four minutes after midnight, the team and one terrified interpreter, or terp, as is commonly said, began climbing into Humvees provided by the motor pole. Each equipped with a driver and a turret gunner, the two vehicles are loaded. Lead vehicle, driver, turret gunner, silver sitting front passenger the interpreter directly behind him and Hutch behind their driver. The rear vehicle goes driver, turret gunner, wind front passenger, an empty rear passenger seat and mangler, slapping his saw, looking at their gunner's legs. The main gate is soon behind them. In a matter of a few spins, both vehicles depart the asphalt, cruising under the power lines and then the lefts and rights and curving sways before their reintroduction with torn up patches of ill-fitting road. Every man but the interpreter watches through night vision as the minimalist of convoys descend south. Ready for this, Team Langer? Mangler says. We are joined this evening with David Rose, who is the author of the novella Lovecraft's Iraq, which just came out. Uh, David, how are you? And tell us about Lovecraft's Iraq. Uh, I'm doing fantastic. Thank you guys so much for having me on your podcast. And um Okay, Lovecraft's Iraq. Where do I begin? Um, basically, <laughs> we're jumping right into it, aren't we? Oh, yeah. Um, 
Well, yeah, well, I'm a I'm I'm a veteran of uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom. I was there in 2004, 2005 as as a recon Marine. And um, I had written in, in the military nonfiction space for several years and uh, getting in uh, to fiction, particularly with the HWA. Someone had told me several years ago, almost like smacking me upside the head, like, hey, hey, Turkey, why don't you mix your uh, your um military background with something you know in in the uh, military horror uh niche and and you know i was like i i really should i really should do that and i had some ideas i'd been kind of cooking on the back burner and um i had always been fascinated how whether it be ramsey campbell or caitlin r Kiernan or whomever i i i love how people find these interesting ways in to the lovecraftian canon and um you know, people have created all sorts of new entities and build off, built off one another. But, um, and I'm almost, I, I'm, I'm grateful that nobody had, had seized the opportunity uh, uh, first, but I, I realized that there was this awesome opportunity waiting that the Necronomicon was, um, you know, one of Lovecraft's most enduring literary features is that uh, it was originally penned in the old Arabic world and just so happens Operation Iraqi Freedom was conducted in the modern one and I got to thinking what would happen if two combating forces got a hold of maybe some parts of the Necronomicon that were left behind. Very, very cool. Um, could you tell us also a little bit about the plot of Lovecraft's Rock? I mean, the, the title kind of hints, yeah, what you're going over. This is a Lovecraftian story that takes place during uh, mid-2000s mid in Iraq. But why don't you introduce a couple characters and what kind of goes down without revealing too much, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> so there is a uh, rather rebellious uh, team of young recon Marines called Stygian 2-3. And um, they, and particularly their team leader, are 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 the main characters. Sort of a bit a bit of like an ensemble cast, I suppose you could say. Uh, but but their team leader is is definitely uh, who the reader is uh, trained their eye on early to to follow. And um, basically, they're operating in uh, a battle space after the second battle of Fallujah, which in in real history was um, one of the, if not the bloodiest conflict, conflict in the Iraq war. So the dust has just settled on that. But soon, um, as I had said a, a moment ago, this team and um, some other entities, be it um, what you might call regular Iraqis, but also a uh, ancient sect of Iraqis who perhaps um, had been posing under the false premise of whatever the common religions are in the region, but they had been worshiping something much older. And um, that cult, along with these recon Marines, uh, end up going head to head in a number of ways. Now, David, you were talking um, about kind of the, the genesis of the novella. And obviously, you know, um, Lovecraft has a couple of ways that, you know, uh, he went with his uh, mythos. He has the Cthulhu, but he also has Dreamlands. And, you know, it sounds like you you kind of went off to the Dreamlands. So we'd love to know what was kind of your first 
dreamland story of Lovecraft that you read? Maybe it was Lovecraft, maybe it was actually somebody else. And then what is your favorite aspects of the dreamlands? Well, I can I can definitely say my first exposure to the dreamlands was through Lovecraft's own hand. I cannot say what the first story was, but the one that resonated with me the most, and, and God forbid I and mispronounce this, you'll have to correct me, was it, is it Cellaface? I, I, I know what you're oh, talking yeah. about, because that's the, the big city that uh, Randolph mm -hmm. Carter's off to to meet his friend. I, I I see it in my head, but, you know, after three syllables and yeah. weird umlauts, I give up on pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. And and, 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 and and frankly, that's one of the beauties of, 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 the, of the way he writes is you kind of, you know, formulate your own your own uh, enunciation for a lot of his stuff. But, but I'll call it cellophane. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that was one of my favorite ones for a, a number of reasons. I. I love the so I got I got into Lovecraft um, just just out of pure and simple curiosity. And it was interesting for me to kind of read a lot of his work before I really knew anything about him. And once I started learning a little bit more about uh, you know his biography and everything and then went and reread some of his work, you get to see some of his own autobiography and, and uh, cellophane that uh, I, I, I love that there is this person who in life um, is, uh, I'm sure Lovecraft would say, you know, rather unimpressive, but when he goes to sleep that the, the world in this, in this man's mind is just, is just so much grander than what anyone could imagine. And if that's not the way that he saw himself, I don't know what is. <laughs> That's, that's a great way of describing uh, Lovecraft. Uh, and that's, I haven't heard it expressed that way before, but um, I definitely like what you've said there. I would say what I like is, you know, you could probably write, and I think there's a couple out there, short stories like in Swords Against Cthulhu, that there's this, you know, mm -hmm. straight up uh, uh, Operation Desert Storm slash, you know, Iraq War stories that have Cthulhu stuff entwined but since this kind of veers in a dreamlands territory that makes it even a bit more unique because i've always kind of seen the dreamlands as you know the distant second of lovecraft's writing so mm -hmm. but but that's our that's how we kind of got into lovecraft was dreamland stuff ourselves we have a mm -hmm. a writer friend named uh, gary myers who wrote a lot of dreamlands back in the the 70s and stuff and he kind of opened the door for us so we have a we have a affinity <laughs> toward that setting uh, it sounds like you do too. So I guess one of the questions asked is, you know, why Dreamlands with uh, a Lovecraft's a rock? I, 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 I can see the two pieces kind of going together and that makes it really unique, but I would like you to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, give us the commentary on that one. Well, one of the, one of the rather fascinating things about, about what he did is that it, I almost feel like this could be like an academic essay or perhaps a debate is like, where does the dreamland stuff begin and where and, and, end because um, it, it seems like it, it's a bit of, it's a bit of a, of a nebulous boundary is that, you know, uh, you can have a story that takes place in <laughs> Providence or, or Boston, or in this case, outside the city of Fallujah. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it only takes a paragraph. To, to, and then suddenly the, the, the characters and the reader are, are, are in the dreamlands. So I don't know. I, th I think you can, 
I'm, you can work in both spaces. And that's, that's even if you only believe that there are two spaces, I, I think that, you know, that, that you can hop in and out of one. And uh, I feel like I'm kind of dithering in my definition here, but that's just because, uh, or my answer to your question, but that's just because this is the kind of question that I will be chewing on until three in the morning tonight. Um, <laughs> is it, you know, is, is, is where does it begin and end? Because most of the story takes place in Iraq proper, but you know, because of the um, Lovecraftian supernatural elements, it, it is it is as well uh, a dreamland story. Mm -hmm. I, I think that kind of nebulous boundary of what is and isn't the dreamlands is actually naturally occurring in Lovecraft. Like I believe his early dreamland story like Polaris and Cats of Ulthar weren't intended to be dreamlands. They were flat out, you know, prehistory, uh, you know, uh, Mesopotamia type area. And then they got, you know, retconned or something into that. So, but I like the idea of, you know, occupying kind of different spaces. Um, uh, two podcasts ago, we, we looked at the uh, book, um, new maps of dream which mm -hmm. we went into like oh this is going to be different dreamland stories and it was but holy smokes did these folks take the concept mm -hmm. of dreamlands into way different directions and so you know fresh mm -hmm. off that we're reading lovecraft's rock which takes it in its own direction so it's mm -hmm. it's a it's a definite different sandbox to play in that yields some really cool results yeah um including uh i think lovecraft's iraq the fact that you come from that that background um, and you have an interest um, and it sounds like a, a bit of a love for the dreamlands. This seems like a, a natural fit for you and you probably had a lot of fun writing Lovecraft's Iraq. But I was also wondering, did you encounter any challenges of putting those two, uh, basically those two disciplines together into Lovecraft's Iraq? Yeah. In, um... <laughs> well, the, this the, one of the challenges was, uh, and, and this has absolutely nothing to do with Lovecraft, but but the other the other side of this is the uh, Marine Recon community is is fiercely protective uh, and, and proud, and uh, and extremely detail oriented. So uh, the nuts and bolts of of the characters, their the things they said the gear on their back or, or, you know, the optics on their rifle, uh, the amount of research that I had to do to refamiliarize myself. See, that's one reason I did this story in 2005. It's, 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 it's a period piece essentially, but because that's when I was there because things changed every six months, every 12 months, at least right. Uh, to where I, I couldn't, to, if, I'll put it to you this way. If I tried to write, this Lovecraft's Iraq in the setting was 2008. I would still be working on the on the, the first paragraph because it, it you know because of the aforementioned uh, necessity of getting all, all the little details right. So so that was a, that was a challenge. Um, it wasn't uh, too painful a one. Uh, in fact, it was kind of fun to go back through some of the old uh, manuals and stuff that that I still keep. Um, but on, on the more on the merging of, of genres, um, I knew when I started that to do this, what, how, what I would say correctly, is that you had to, if you're going to have a, a, a horror book that involves the military, 
I think horror is it only works when characters are vulnerable. You know, you have the ship with the broken mast and the huge shark circling it, or you have the the, the teenagers with the phone line that gets cut. You know what I mean? In, in the house by themselves. And, you know, I, I, the question early was, how on earth do you have these formidable adversaries vulnerable? Um, because granted, you could just have a, a Lovecraft beast come in and wipe out the entire military and that'd be a pretty short story um <laughs> and so <laughs> you know um that would be a flash fiction piece um uh, but but to to but to, to create um a, a story with some twists and turns and some substance some substance and even some self-exploration uh, involved is that um, I was, uh, the challenge originally was okay how do I make how do I make this team vulnerable and and the answer to that challenge if if your listeners are curious is I inverted the things that make the military strong uh, such as uh, gear working okay well what if a Lovecraftian element suddenly makes some of the gear stop working that's sort of the the, e the equivalent of the bad guy cutting the telephone line pre-smartphone which completely changed <laughs> the horror the horror industry um but 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 also the brotherhood and 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 the uh, obedience to rank structure and and hierarchy and, and these these necessities that make people function in those austere environments what happens if that breaks down so now you did a great job with that too because i i kept thinking about as i was reading the story about uh how the technology you know, breaks apart. And, you know, that, that really kind of leaves you, you know, uh, in a precarious situation as, as we find our characters find themselves in. And then, you know, having a military structure that's very rigid is, you know, very detailed. It's like it plans out the expectations of, okay, well, we think if A happens, this is what we do. If B happens, this is what we do. And, and suddenly you have that completely turned around and on its ear because and the military can't plan for for dreamlands <laughs> yeah very that's that's a bumper sticker that the, the, <laughs> the military can't plan for dreamlands that might have to be the name of the sequel i appreciate it <laughs> well kind of going off what michelle said you know there, there's like well i'm not military but i'm gonna assume people in military can uh identify with this but there's like two aspects of horror here so we're talking like equipment breaking down like in the first mm -hmm. time they go to the house and their radios and stuff aren't working and you know that's the equivalent of you know getting the phone cut as you said but then the very next chapter spoiler sorry you know they report back the base they're getting chewed out and you know how do you report this type of stuff and that's not even something that you think about i think of like the movie hot fuzz where you know they concentrate on like you have to do paperwork and all this boring stuff Mm -hmm. To me, that's like kind of a this unseen element in Lovecraft's rack. I, I just equated Lovecraft's rack to a hot fuzz, didn't I? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but and also uh, in terms of detail, where you're trying to get the detail across. Uh, again, you know, I don't know the acronym, so I was always constantly going on Wikipedia. What, what's a saw? What's a uh, mm -hmm. you know a quad con or you know all that stuff? But there was uh, instances where outside of the equipment it was like detective fiction, like, like when the recon team sticking in two, three, like gets to this house and they're hiding and they're looking around, like we see tire tracks, we see where the bullets hit and they're just inferring all this stuff, like, Hmm, you know, that's, that's really this person and, and this group and all that other stuff. It was ser seriously very 
detective fiction-y. And mm-hmm. I, I really like that aspect of it too. Well, you know, that that is a high compliment because as we know, one of the, the, the strongest themes or we can even say tropes uh, to the point of parody of, of, of the Lovecraft writing is the, is the scholar who digs too deep. You know, Mm -hmm. and incidentally, uh, Marine Recon is an information gathering specialty. And so I I saw a way to sort of weave those two uh, together as well. Seamless. I like it. Yeah. So I I would say that's a big success of the the novella. So I'll just come out and ask what what other things are like you really proud of with Lovecraft's Iraq? So this one, this one's very personal is um, uh, the in in the the hollowed halls of marine recon there is no position more respected more respected than uh that of team leader um and there are all sorts of other you know there's uh, which which you, you, the reader gets to learn in the book to some extent an assistant team leader a radio operator but even people above a team leader uh, um, and i know this is getting slightly technical but like a platoon sergeant and and these types of things who even have more power than a team leader. The team leader is is uh, is everything, and um, these are people who are in their early to mid twenties who are making uh, life or death decisions. But not just that, but also to be able to do some of that detective work you had just mentioned. So, um, I never wa- I was never a team leader uh, in recon. Um, I did. I was a radio operator, kind of an assistant team leader. Um, I worked in some of the training platoons, but, um, and personally, I don't think I could, I could be a team leader now and I'm 39. I just don't think I have the people skills. <laughs> um, but this was my opportunity to explore what it would have been like if I was one. And that is it. That was a really cool feeling. I feel like in some strange way, I checked the box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I liked the character Silver and I, I felt bad for him. I just felt like, yay, you know, I was like right beside him thinking, okay, he made team leader. And and then it was like, everything just fell to crap for this guy. And, you know, being faced with such insurmountable odds, you know, with regards to, you know, having to question whether he tells the truth or says a lie and just dealing with different, personalities within the teams even and and some of the twists that happened there um made it i i I felt for sober through quite a bit of the the story yeah yeah and you know that 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 inner team corrosion uh, Mm -hmm. is is not only um is not only something that i think enhances a book like this but it's also uh it's something that's very real and um I haven't really, it's kind of an interesting door we, side door we just opened is that um, some of the military fiction and military fantasy books that I've encountered don't really go into that. And, um, you know, it usually shows them as rather unified, you know, unless some alien parasite gets in one of them's ear or something, but, but, <laughs> uh, but, but to actually see the, the human conflict, be it, um, doubt or jealousy or, or these things that, that that really do plague us and they're not very glor they're, they're 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 not often glorified if they're even glorifiable but they they're definitely there and uh i'm i'm, I'm so happy i mean I, I i can just say i'm honored that you um that you've mentioned that in, in the way you did because um 
I, I was definitely going for that. And that was um, go, kind of a bit of a sentimental journey. Uh, there's not a whole lot of autobiography in Lovecraft's Iraq for me, but I definitely pulled from some inner team fights that happened uh, <laughs> 15 years ago. And, 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 and as Brian McNaughton would say, profitably, profitably converted it to fiction. There we go. Well, and I think that's a great observation that you made about the various teams and, and stories, because I, as soon as you said about the alien going in the air, I thought of a, one of the stories that I've read uh, by James Rowland. And I think he, he uses that kind of device, but, you know, in all of his squads, they seem to pretty much stick together and things like that. And I'd, I'd love to know, David, if did you have uh, any of your characters surprise you as you're writing them? Were there any sort of surprises to come out, revelations, or, you know, they take a different turn than you had anticipated when you were writing them? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. And um, that is, um, that's such a great question to be asked, because uh, it, I think this boils down to, like, how do writers write? And, and, and it depends on who you're asking. And me, I, I tend to um, really, really, uh, I, I make some pretty robust uh, draft notes, and 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 I and I, and I actually try um, to be rather mechanical in, in the beginning, and uh, and I you know I, I rearrange things, and and um, it's it's I I I, it, <laughs> I, look, I look like like some sort of crazed architect, I'm sure, um, but. And I almost feel I almost wince when I when I make it sound like that what I, my, my process is formulaic. But um, that is to say that no matter how formulaic I try to make certain things to get me from A to B or from B to C, it never fails that, you know, these characters that seem to sprout out of not just, you know, perhaps my subconscious, but some might even argue like a collective conscious is that that. Uh, they even to to me uh, at certain points take on a bit of life of their own to where, you know, you might you can like all all I just said is uh, just a complete blathering of a much shorter version. And I'll try this. <laughs> I I can I control them for the first 30 pages. They control me for the rest, Aww. you know. And, and, um, and yeah, there, there were, um, things that I did not expect that actually contradicted some solid notes that I had had for later on down the road. And, and that, that, that sense of discovery really is just, it's, it's a writer's high. Oh, I bet. I bet. I, I haven't quite experienced that yet, but I'm, I'm hoping to sometime. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, now that, uh, Lovecraft's Rock has been released, we got to ask what's next for you. Well, I am going to like a huge catfish at the at the mouth of a dam. I'm just going to sit with my mouth open and absorb the feedback, uh, good or otherwise. Um, and uh, I do I do have my eyes on on a sequel. Um, that's you know uh, it's a it's a bit a bit premature uh, to go into anything um, other than hey I'm thinking about one. But um, yeah, I. I, I I would like to um, not just maybe push the Lovecraft's Iraq story uh, an inch or two further, but I, I would like to expand more the, the macro idea of um, synthesizing uh, 
the global war on terror, or not even that, the, the American military with um with the Lovecraftian. So I, I have some ideas that might actually take us to Vietnam, for instance. Ooh. Oh, that'd be very interesting. Sign me up. <laughs> yep. You will be you will be one of the first to know because this this has been <laughs> a, a very enjoyable podcast. Well, David, we appreciate you coming on. Again, congrats for the release of Lovecraft's Rock, and we wish you super success with it and hopefully a sequel. All righty, guys. Thank you so much. Our next transmission is with Jonathan Mayberry. Jonathan is a versatile writer-editor, having written novels, short stories, anthologies, and comics in just about every genre, including horror, fantasy, military, adventure, sci-fi, and thriller. Listeners may recognize Jonathan for his V-Wars, Joe Ledger, and Rotten Ruins series. He is a New York best-selling author and has an extensive list of awards, including five Bram Stoker Awards, three Scribe Awards, and a San Diego Comic-Con Inkpot Award. Today, Jonathan is with us to discuss his new novel, Kagan. Welcome, Jonathan. Reading the entire first chapter of my new novel, Kagan the Damned. Chapter one, Kagan Vale woke to the sound of his own damnation. End of chapter one. We're joined with uh, Jonathan Mayberry tonight. Jonathan, it is great to see you. How are you doing, sir? I'm great. It's, it's nice to be here with you guys. <laughs> so you have a new dark fantasy novel, first in a trilogy, uh, Kagan the Damned. So tell us about it. Well, th- this is Kagan the Damned. Um, <laughs> it's, it's actually, ho- we're hoping it's going to be an ongoing series. Okay. But, um, you know, trilogy is kind of where we always start with, with epic fantasy. But it's set 50,000 years from now. Our civilization completely collapsed at a point where it was down to barbarism. It crawls back up again. Nobody in, in, in the world of this story remembers our world. So it's, but it is planet Earth. And um, the culture level is kind of along the lines of the generic Lord of the Rings, you know, Game of Thrones. You know, it looks like, it all looks like 7th century, you know. Um, but it's, it's a fun story, but very dark. Uh, magic has been repressed for, you know, well over a thousand years. And this witch king brings it back and uses it to conquer this benign empire. And that's, the, that's pretty much the opening of the book. It opens with that. And um, main character is, he's the captain of the palace guard. His job is to protect the, the imperial children. And he swears on his soul, this is what he will do but they're all killed. Again, opening of the book, not a spoiler. <laughs> so he is actually literally abandoned by his own gods. He sees them appear and they turn his back on him. So he's damned. So his only path he thinks to redemption is to defeat the witch king and restore the, you know, the empire. But um, that's a much harder thing than he thinks. And every, everything turns out to be much worse than he, than he anticipates. And I had a lot of fun writing this book. Oh, cool. It sounds a lot of fun. I, it, I don't. I remember uh, Lynn Carter had a series back in the seventies that took place way in the uh, you know uh, uh, distant future where uh, you know it's Earth but fantasy and whatnot. Yeah, so, on the Green Star, I think maybe. Maybe. 
Yeah, or there might have been. I, I I knew Lynn, and he was a great guy, and I read a lot of his books. Uh, but yeah, it's I I love I love setting it on Earth because I can bring in you know oak trees and you know things that yeah. we know. Not everything needs a weird weird fantasy <laughs> name to it because that gets a little ponderous after a while. Um, and I I just love the world building though was so much fun and. I had been a fan of epic fantasy since I was a kid. Very first, in fact, I'll tilt my thing up here. The very first novel I ever bought, right above my finger, there's Conan the Wanderer. Uh -huh. Lancer reprint from the 60s. Um, so I've been a fan ever since and grew up reading Michael Moorcock and, and all those guys. And never thought I'd actually write one of these. And my editor reached out and said, hey, any chance you might want to write epic fantasy? And I'm, yeah. So there we go. <laughs> So obviously that's part of the genesis of your novel. Can you talk a little bit more about um, actually sitting down to write and how it came about? Came about. Yeah, well, it's this is one of the weird quirks about the, the publishing biz. Within Macmillan Publishing, you know, there's different imprints. Tor has a really big share of the epic fantasy world. St. Martin's Griffin is mostly mysteries, thrillers, and so on. And they want a bigger share of, you know, epic fantasy. So they're kind of, you know, at war with one another, even though they're both within Macmillan. And at one of the meetings, um, the, the publisher and the marketing folks were saying, does any, any of the editors here know of writer who is either writing an epic fantasy or could write one? So my editor reached out to me, and, you know, because I'm kind of like the, the guy that will try anything. And I, I don't think there's much I wouldn't try in terms of fiction because my career has been all over the place anyway. So he asked me, you know, if I'd be interested. I said, yes. I, I said, I, I've read a ton of it. I still read a lot of it. And he said, send me a pitch. So I sent him a, a pitch about 40 minutes later. And within two hours, we had a two book deal. Um, and to sit down to write it, I mean, I had a, I created a map for it and then hired Kat Scully, who's this fantastic artist who works with the, uh, the horror and fantasy crowds. And she created a beautiful version of the map that will be in the book. Um, I, I did a lot of you know preliminary world building and character development. Um, and while I was writing it, I decided to have some fun with the religion of it because there's like the good guys, their religion is a harvest, harvest gods, you know, but there are two other main religions within the story. Um, the religion of the bad guys, which is Hastor, um, the, the king in yellow, ah, uh, otherwise known as the shepherd god. And then there's a, a religion from this island nation where they, they worship Cthulhu <gasps> and Cthulhu and Hastor are half brothers. So that's actually part of the Lovecraft mythology. Mm -hmm. So Cthulhu is kind of a good guy in this. He, he, only because he hates his half brother. And so he, so he is on the side of, of this one group. And that, that storyline is like, it's kind of like a B-roll storyline. It's, it's, it's not the main storyline, but it's something in the background that get bigger and bigger with each book. It's so much fun. And I also, you know, wanted to in include, you know, since magic's returning, some you know elements of, of the, the fairy folk the darker versions of the fairy folk you know um and even folded i have a character that that folds in elements of the poem la belle dame sans merci and also the poem lady of shallot so elements of these classic poems by keats and tennyson are folded into her backstory because she's an immortal but i i just had a lot of fun creating a new type of hero the um he is the second best fighter in, in, of the age. His mother was the best fighter of the age. And, you know, unfortunately dies at the beginning of the book. So he winds up 
being the next one. And she was a knife fighter, not a sword fighter. So I got to play with um, somebody using, they're really about the length of, of Roman short swords, but they call them daggers, but using uh, short blades as, as opposed to long blades. And as a martial arts guy, I've been doing martial arts for 58 years. I, and I, I like short weapons and I like close range fighting. I was able to create a fighting style for him that works in the book without being, you know, lectury about how to do the fighting, just common sense ways in which somebody with a couple of short blades would fight somebody with long blades. So I got to play with different types of not only world building, but character development based on non-cliche versions of characters. You don't want to do the two-dimensional villain, for example. So I gave my villain a lot of complexity and some legitimate motivation for attacking this empire. So even though he's doing bad things, he thinks he's doing it for the right reasons. So I, I got to play with everything's in the gray areas. You know, there's no real good guy. There's no real bad guy. It's all these shades of gray. And that makes it for a writer so much more interesting to write because that's they're more believable characters. And in fantasy, if you want readers to suspend their disbelief, you can't go so far that there's no proxy character for the reader within the story. And so I wanted characters that have that, that emotional complexity, psychological damage and other things that would give readers an entry point for them to feel like they're, you know, they have a proxy in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Man, you, you had a lot of fun writing this. It <laughs> definitely shows through. Yeah. No, no idea. I mean, and also I, and I write fast and the first book is 176,000 words. So 176 is the longest book I ever did. It took me about three and a half months to write it. Um, the the second book is 207,000 words. It took me four months to write it. So, you know, I'm so excited. I can't wait to get back and just like churn out stuff. Plus I've written some short stories, you know, in the, in that world. And um, this, the first book comes out May 10th, somewhere between that. And when the next book comes out January 10th, the publisher is going to release one of the short stories. It's actually a novelette uh, for free to the readers to kind of, you know, an extra adventure for the character. Oh, very cool. That's a good yeah. way to do it too. Yeah. And keep it uh, going. Cause well, usually I know when folks latch on to a, an epic fantasy or even a long running series, you know, if you have side story characters have their own stories or whatnot, they will gobble up. I want more of this canon. Yeah. And actually this, this quality, if this was a video game, it would be a side adventure because it actually takes place during the first book. But there are some parts of the first book where he's just kind of like wandering, trying to find himself. And so I just put it in there and it, it, it fits into the overall story. I then reference it in the second book so that, you know, it has continuity, um, but it's a complete adventure. It's him being hunted by a family of werewolves and, you know, who doesn't like stories with families of werewolves. So it's <laughs> fun to write. So Jonathan, was there any uh, challenges that you encountered during this uh, adventure of writing Kagan? Uh, well, a couple. One turned out not to, to be anything to worry about, but I thought at the time when I was writing it, the book kept getting you know longer and epic fantasy tends to be long, you know, um, but I didn't want to go too crazy. You know, I think my, my longest book before this was 150,000 words. And um, I was afraid the editor was going to come back and say, you know, you've got to cut X number of words. And uh, he didn't at all. In fact, he stayed home when I send a new book to him, we've done about 30 books together. When I send a new book into him, he'll take a day or two off and just read the book, you know, and uh, that's cool. Um, but he, he didn't want me to cut it. And then with the second book, which was 207,000 words, I was really sure he was going to ask me to cut it, though I really liked 
what was in that. He called me eight o'clock on a Sunday morning and said, I just finished reading the book. I love it. I'm like, okay. And I'm waiting for him for the axe, you know, the, 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 uh, axe to fall. And he's like, um, and I need you to add a couple things. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay. I didn't see that coming. Um, but, uh, so that was one challenge and it turned out not to be a thing to worry about. The second challenge was interesting because I had no footprint at all in this genre. I mean, I, I could write horror, mystery, thrillers, science fiction, no epic fantasy footprint. And I didn't really know any of the authors who wrote epic fantasy, except for Kevin J. Anderson, who's, who's a buddy of mine. But he's written a couple. It's not his main gig. So I didn't, you know, I left it up to my editor to find um, people to possibly read it and give cover quotes. And I have a thing where I don't want to cover quote unless somebody has actually read the book. You know, I don't want to the... I, I know there are some writers, and I will not name names, who just give a cover quote out. I hate that. Uh, I never give out a cover quote unless I read something myself. And then my editor contacts me and says, we got a really cool cover quote. You're not going to believe who it's from. And I'm like, well, who's it from? It's Michael Moorcock. Yeah. And it's on the cover. There it is. Yeah. Um, and I freaked out because I have read every book he's ever written. Going back to the 60s, um, all the Eternal Champion stuff, Elric, and he read the book. He actually sent me an email where he, he was discussing plot points all the way through it. So he clearly did read it. And he actually was upset with me because he didn't figure out who the villain was because the villain has kind of a secret identity. And when he got there, he's like, you bastard. It's like, <laughs> um, but then also Robin Hobb gave us a, a great cover quote. Shauna McGuire gave us a great cover quote. And James Rollins. So I was like, holy crap. And then we got a Kirkus starred review. So I, I, as one of those things where you never know, and you, you know, with imposter syndrome, you really never know whether something that you're, you're doing now is going to have any validity with readers. Mm -hmm. um, I got to admit that I'm, I'm so surprised and grateful that the reception of the book has been so strong and that surprises me every day. And I'm, jazzed and you know can't wait till it's out and you know less than a month i'll be doing i'll be launching it in um uh, dolestown books in pennsylvania we're going out to pennsylvania to launch it and um i can't wait to talk to readers about it after they read it you know that's a new thing it's a new crowd for me and I, I know usually we ask this at the very end you know hey what things to promote and stuff but just to kind of break in there you actually have the ability of that folks can order this book and get like a signed book plate for you from yeah it? and i'll put up I'll, I'll put that link up again on my facebook okay. in, uh, page in, in a um and, and twitter page uh, uh in in later today or tomorrow but if they order by by may 9th i think it is they'll get the book plus a signed book plate and they're having me sign a whole bunch of kagan <laughs> book plates we actually had well, there's somewhere around here uh, <laughs> oh here, here's here's one actually um, I actually made one specifically for Kagan. Oh, look at the sword. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's well, the, the, dag the daggers are, are, you know, it's kind of a, a riff off the actual cover because that has the dagger. Yep. But, and the roses, because the, the hero's mother was known as the poison rose. Um, she fought with poison daggers. So he now has those daggers and he eventually, you know, he's the second book is called The Son of the Poison Rose. So I thought that'd be fun for the book plates. Oh, so exciting. I'm, when we get done, I know what I'm doing. I'm ordering the book. So I'm very excited. And, and I'm not at all surprised that people are as excited about the book um, as I am. And 
I mean, you, you, you've proven yourself in all these genres, Jonathan. I mean, just stellar writing. I'm not at all surprised that you would knock it out of the park with this genre too. I pre I very pre much appreciate you saying that, but that's still, it's, it's a weird thing, no matter how many books I write. And I just finished my 45th novel. It, the imposter syndrome thing never quite goes away. No. Um, and I'm not sure it should. Um, in fact, I think I would distrust any writer who is so convinced that everything he or she writes is going to be gold. Um, I, I really care about what I write and I care about how people take it. I mean, I don't write it to, it's weird. Uh, it's going to sound strange to say, I don't write it to please the readers. I write it, I write the best book I can and hope they are pleased. Um, but I never assume they will be. But I love the book and my editor thinks it's the best one I've done. And we've done 30 novels together. So that's a lot because you've, you've done some great novels out there. I mean, I've read through all the Joe Ledger, the V Wars, and you, you knock it out of the park. They're great stories. So I can just imagine that Kagan the Dam is, is going to be a brilliant uh, read as well. Um, Jonathan, I've got to ask, did any of your characters surprise you while you were writing them? Hmm. Yeah. Um, first off, when I created the character of the Witch King, um, I knew who what his secret identity was, but I, I didn't know how complex the character would be until I was actually writing scenes with him. Uh, because and there's a side of him that's very brutal, but there's a side of him that has a deep belief system. And I wanted to play with that. And the more I wrote that character, the more interesting he became. And also several supporting characters, you know, you need a supporting character. Like Kagan eventually has two friends who become his companions for the whole series. Uh, this big guy named Took, who is um, uh, an adventurer and a, and a woman named Philia, who's actually Kagan's ex, who's now with this other guy. And they were um, like my, my notes on them when I started the book were very sketchy. You know, I just know that I, you know, sometimes you trust that you'll find the character while you, when you write the character, but in plot, you just know you need those characters. And it wasn't until I started writing them that I, I, that their personalities emerged in ways that were much different than I expected and different than the standard her heroic companion. They're not sidekicks. They're co-companions on the adventure. And uh, in some ways they're, they're sharper than he is because he is a city boy. And there is, he spends a lot of the, the book in the wild. So that becomes a factor. Um, Took became much funnier than I expected. And Philia actually became the most mature character probably in the entire book. Um, the other thing that surprised me is I had written a fantasy short story um, years ago for an anthology John Joseph Adams was editing. And it was, uh, I'm sorry, it wasn't for John Joseph Adams. It was for Mike Van Travel's anthology where uh, we had to write stories that were essentially the Sherlock Holmes model of a hyper um, aware and intuitive person and a sidekick. And I did, uh, instead of you know, Holmes and Watson, I did this, this woman who was an investigator for the, the Office of Miracles and her not, uh, nun, they're both nuns, and her, her novice apprentice. And as I'm writing the book, I thought, wow, I should bring those characters into this book because I need a character like, um, the, the, the Holmes type, the, the really smart, older, you know, person. But as I was writing and I realized I didn't want them to be a companion team anymore. This is now years later. The female character became, it, it, as soon as I start writing about her, created a whole new storyline within the book 
that was that led me in down toward the, the, the path of introducing Cthulhu into the book. <laughs> and it wouldn't, I don't think I would have done that had that character not been in the story because she's a great gateway character to that. And I even found this online translator that allows you to translate English into the language of Relea, to, of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of that in the book. And my poor audiobook reader, Ray Porter, has to read it. <laughs> nice. He sent he sent me a couple of emails over the over the course of the years with because of things I throw at him in my books. How do you pronounce this? There's nothing but apostrophes and W's and consonants. That's it, you know. But <laughs> turns out, you know, Ray, who's one of the top audiobook readers. In fact, last year the audiobook of the year last year was uh, uh, the Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir, which he mm-hmm. uh, narrated. Um, raised on so many books for me. I've tried to trip him up several times and I always fail. Turns out he's one of the people known for being able to pronounce the Cthulhu language. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, he, there was a book I wrote called Deadlands Ghost Walkers where I had a character speaking Lakota Sioux and I had contacted the, the Sioux Tribal Council to get translations. I figured this is really going to screw Ray up. Turns out he'd had to learn Sioux for a play he was in. He speaks Sioux. Nobody speaks Sioux. <laughs> And it's like one thing after another where I try to trip him up and it turns out, nope, he's on it. That's crazy. I love it. I, I think, was it like Wales or, you know, they have the towns with like, you know, 50 letter names. Yeah. I, I think you got to go that route, but he'll probably surprise you still. He probably, <laughs> probably would. You know, he, five yeah. years living in Wales or something. <laughs> well, he, he just got back from living in England for a while in Scotland. Oh. So it wouldn't surprise me if he could speak, you know, I've never... And the thing is, he does cold reads. He doesn't read the book first. He sits down and records it as, as he's reading it for the first time. So that's insane, too. I mean, Interesting. Why does he do it that way? I, I'm, I mean, I guess that's just the way he is, but... Yeah, supernatural powers? Yeah. I guess. I, I yeah. A narrator for an audiobook, you kind of want to know what's coming so you can shift your tone and delivery accordingly. But if you could do it cold, that's like, wow. Well, you know, that's why he was an accomplished character actor. He's been in a lot of TV shows and movies. He's known for being able to immerse himself in the characters. Mm-hmm. And um, I, when I first heard, when he first told me that, I was so surprised. Um, and it's great because he, I've thrown so many different types of books at him. And every one, he just, he just levels up, you know, it makes it so much fun. And it allows me to write for his narration, for his narration style. Oh, nice. So this is your first big four-way in epic fantasy, but you're obviously very well read in old school epic fantasy, but you know, post Game of Thrones, there is a big market. People want to devour more epic fantasy. Sure. So how would you feel, how do you think Kagan, uh, you know, stands out among the crowd of other epic fantasies? I, th- I think the readers of Game of Thrones and the readers of Joe Abercrombie's First Law series would really dig this book because the action is brutal and bloody. But also the characters are nuanced and um, it isn't the usual, it's, he's, there's no barbarian characters and it. it's not a Conan type story. Um, the villain actually has, uh, is uh, inspired to a great degree by the character Kane in Carl Edward Wagner's epic fantasies, which were very dark and very Lovecraftian. Um, but the character is, um, he's a good guy who just happens to be you know, a fighter who has to do deadly, you know, dangerous things. So there's not the, you know, there's no misogyny in the book. Um, there's, uh, it, it's, it's just, it's, it's, 
it's funny. I, it's not one of those books that that some people would call a woke book, which I hate that phrase because nobody actually uses it unless it's a pejorative anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does speak to cultural sensibilities that are not the old standard cliche. It's a very modern epic fantasy in, in terms of the way it's written and in terms of the respect for the reader, too. Mm-hmm. You know, I you write this without having to explain too much because the readers of epic fantasy are skilled readers in the genre. They, they know the tropes. They know uh, what works and what doesn't work. And, you, you know, with that sensibility, um, you can write up to the reader. And that makes it a real challenge for the writer instead of writing down to them, like schooling them all the time. You're writing up to the reader because you, you have that much respect for their ability to really catch and follow the, the subtleties of it. Mm-hmm. I, I've never, you know, heard it put that way before, writing up to the reader, because, you know, there is the, I don't know how to say it, but it might come off negative. I don't mean to, but there is that, like, writers, yeah, I'm a writer. I'm writing for my readers. I got a product and everything. That does kind of carry a downness to it so yeah hearing it that way is actually very humble well it, it i mean writers should not be negatives you're, you're writing a, a story that that you hope they will relate to but i probably got the real sense of writing up to readers when i started doing ya mm-hmm. some years ago um i had not read ya since seventh grade when i read to kill a mockingbird <laughs> so when my agent had taken one of my um novellas and said she wanted to shop it as the opening for a ya novel I had to catch up to read what was what YA had become. And it was brilliant. I mean, it was nuanced and complex. Thematically, there was nothing talking down to the reader in, in all the good YA that she recommended to me. Cassandra Clare, Holly Black, Scott Westerfield, um, you know, those guys. So when I wrote the Rotten Ruin series, which was that series, I didn't, the only thing I did was t- tone down the language. You know, there wasn't as much foul language. But in terms of complexity of theme and darkness and other stuff, you know, I, I grew up rough. I know kids who grew up rough. Kids these days have the internet. They can see rough anywhere they want to go. To talk down to them is a disservice because they actually do know. They, they may play dumb in front of their parents because that's a responsibility. It's a professional responsibility of a teenager to pretend you're not smart because <laughs> then your parents want you to do stuff. But the actual teens are really smart, very educated, very savvy. And when I started going to schools and talking to them, I, I was so impressed. So ever since then, um, and that was 2000, that was my fourth novel, I think it was. Ever since then, I, um, I really respect the reader and I, I write stuff that, you know, worst case scenario, they may have to grab a dictionary, but everybody has a device, they can Google a word. But, you know, that's it. And, you know, I don't, I don't try to, to show off my, my, uh, personal dictionary sometimes is a word they don't know sometimes a word i don't know but i don't water it down yeah no that's great um and and i would have to agree because i can remember growing up reading different fantasy books or you know ya books before they were called ya books and now they're incredible they're entertaining they're complex They, they delve into themes that I find fascinating as an, yeah. as an adult. So I enjoy the YA too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you have written in so many genres. What would you say is your distinguishing feature of your writing? So in other words, hmm. what is your auteur or trademark? The John um, Mayberry yes, voice. The, the, the Mayberry voice. <laughs> um, there's a couple of things, I guess, that, that are trademarks. One 
if there's action in the story, the action is realistic. Um, no matter how, you know, whether it's a human fighting a vampire or a human fighting a human, you know, after all these years in jujitsu and teaching martial arts history, writing hundreds and hundreds of articles for, you know, martial arts magazines, um, I write a realistic fight scene. And I think that that's an important thing. But thematically, uh, there's a couple, two things that stand out. One is that no matter how dark things are, darkness is not the absolute. There's always the possibility of light. Doesn't have to be a shiny, happy Disney ending, but there is the possibility of it. And characters who are pitted against things beyond their control have the opportunity to level up. Um, you know, I, I grew up very, very rough in a very rough household. The father was very abusive and so on. I had to, to learn how to get tough to survive. And I did. And I, I taught women self-defense for 35 years, teaching women to survive. A lot of them had been victims. And I saw how they could level up and become powerful. So the heroes in, in my story, male and female, tend to be people who are facing unbelievable odds, but the potential for them to rise to that challenge is always there. Um, you're not going to see violence for its own sake. You're not going to see sexual abuse uh, for its own sake. I mean, it may be alluded to, but I'm not going to do a graphic rape scene, nothing like that. Um, I want the stories to be dark and complex, but I want the reader to feel safe with me. Um, we're going to get through this together, even if we have scars at the end of it. Yeah. That's well, quite that's true. Nice to have a, a journey to go on with uh, folks, readers and writers alike. Yeah. yeah. So with Kagan, that means now you've conquered the high uh, epic fantasy genre. And plus, you know, you have sci-fi and horror and a plethora of other genres that you've uh, <laughs> staked your claim in. Is there any unconquered genre that you're eyeing in the future? And please let it be Sword and Planet. <laughs> Actually, uh, possibly. Um, there's a couple of things that, that uh, we're working on. Uh, like for, I edit Weird Tales magazine, so we're actually probably going to do a Sword and Planet issue. Oh, cool. Tales. But that would be like 2023 or, or, or so. Um, but in terms of themes, one of the areas I, I had wanted to explore was deep space futuristic um, military science fiction. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm actually writing a series now with Weston Oaks um, that we sold three deep space military science fiction novels um, called the Sleeper series. And he did the first draft. I'm doing the second draft. I'm going to bat it back and forth. But also I wanted to do, uh, keep going deeper into deep space and do um, deep space cosmic horror. Okay. And I have a series I just sold to the new, Weird Tales has a new imprint in conjunction with Blackstone. I, even though I'm the editor of the magazine, I still had a pitch to it, pitch to the imprint. And I pitched um, a concept. The, 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 the quick take on it is, we find a way to be able to go across the galaxy instantaneously. But once we get there, we then have to build the, the, the portal to come back. So we're there for months and months. We get out there and we find out that creatures like Cthulhu and all the other monsters that came to earth were fleeing something they were afraid of. And we just rang the doorbell. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's that series, you know, it's like, when Cthulhu's no longer your worst case scenario, you're you're in some trouble. You uh -huh. know? Uh -huh. I, I'm trying to think what would scare you know the the great old ones and stuff because it's got to be even scarier and even more unfathomable. Well, it's yeah. it starts with sentient black holes and gets worse. Mm -hmm. You know, oh so my. imagine a black hole with the personality of a piranha, um, and it likes your your taste, so it's it's going to find you. You know. <laughs> 
so that's like I said, that's just one of the lower level, level things that we out there. So it's 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 a lot of fun. Um, uh, it's called I'm calling that series of novels the Dark Worlds series. And what's what's fun is even though they'll be my novels, uh, it's a shared world. So other writers can come in and write novels in that. And we already have somebody else who just also closed the deal with Blackstone to write a novel in that same world, but not involving my characters. And that's going to be fun. I love shared world stuff. I, I think that leads really good to our next question of like, you like, you do a lot of series and, and shared roles and like, what's your attraction to it? And I think you kind of alluded a little bit to that. Well, um, and this is again, a Michael Moorcock thing way back in the, in the sixties and seventies, he had created a character named Jerry Cornelius, who was this crazy international new wave type of assassin. And the stories made very little sense, but were incredibly entertaining and, and, politically biting and so on. There's a reason he and Alan Moore are such close friends. Just, you know, <laughs> um, they're very much like two sides of the same coin. So I love those. I, I, I love the fact that I love the fact that Lovecraft invited his friends to write stories with his characters. Um, the wild card series um, done by um, George R. R. Martin. He invited people to write those stories. Robert Lynn Aspirin with, with his, his series, the, the, the myth series. I love that. I love when people play in the same world. And I've also done a lot of media tie-in work where I'm playing in other people's worlds. I mean, my first bestseller was a novelization of The Wolfman. And I wrote for Marvel for years. And done, I've, I've done stories in Hellboy, True Blood, John Carter of Mars, Sherlock Holmes, all these different worlds. And I'm now president of the International Association of Media Tie-in Writers. So I love shared worlds. I love playing with other toys, other people's toys. And I love letting them play with my toys. Uh, I have two licenses of my own. Uh, you know, the Joe Ledger series, we have, we're working on our second anthology where I'm inviting writers to come in and play. Um, and viewers, you know, those were shared world books. Um, so it's just fun to, to all conspire together. And it's like, we're all playing the same weird game. It's like, almost like playing a professional version of Dungeons and Dragons and getting paid for it. That kind of thing, you know, somebody else created it, but we're having fun with it. And also, it, 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 on a personal note, I know how hard it is to break into this business. You know, I know how lucky I've been along the way. I like being able to provide, you know, paid work for my friends. And I, I've been able to bring in, you know, scores of, of, of friends of mine into my various projects, allow them to work and get paid. And there's no downside to that. It's all upside because unlike the belief that some people have that writing is a competitive business, it's not. It's way open doors. There's plenty of room for new people. And we need those new people, those fresh voices. So if there's anything I can do to facilitate that, it's not only fun, it's a little self-serving because it, it strengthens the industry itself. Mm -hmm. I like that. Uh, you you remind me quite a bit of, of course, Lee Murray, who always is giving back to the community. I love Lee. She's a great friend. And yes. we've we've been in each other's anthologies. Yes. Yes. And, and you play in similar sandboxes. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I have to say, uh, you also did a, a story in the, um, the Alien uh, franchise. Uh, I've done, I've got into two anthologies, that Alien Bug Hunt and the new one, Aliens versus Predator. And the license holder, Fox, for both. Um, it's weird. Authors or editors generally don't like to write stories in their own anthologies. But sometimes if it's a license thing, the license holder requires it. So I went up writing stories in both anthologies and I've written predator stories for um, uh, Brian Thomas Schmidt's 
uh, two predator anthologies, and it's so much fun. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, I I have uh, your first anthology on the aliens uh, essays, so that was uh, a lot of fun. And well, after this conversation, really send me your mailing address. I'll send you a copy of Aliens versus Predator. Oh, okay. Well, great. Thank you. I grew up yeah. reading the Aliens versus Predator uh, Dark Horse comics, so it's always a, yeah. a good universe yeah. to play in. They, they are fun. I had one really fun one thing, one part of Alien vs. Predator that was particularly fun. My favorite of the Predator movies is the third one, Predators, Adrian Brody and that crew on an alien world. Yes. Mm -hmm. The guy who played Hanzo, the Yakuza, um, Louis Zawa, is a good friend of mine. So I asked him if he would like to collaborate with me on a story that is a, a sequel to the movie where it's that character's younger brother who's also Yakuza brought to the planet. So we wrote that together. We had a blast doing that. Oh, that sounds so fun. Oh, and yes. Very, very interconnected too. Yes, yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, well, you, you've uh, mentioned it before, but love to give you another, another opportunity. Uh, now that Kagan the Dam is uh, going to be out on, I think, May 10th. May 10th. Um, what else is next for you? Are you working in some of your other series as well? Yeah, well, I'm doing the the uh, first of the new series with Weston Oaks right now, Sleepers. The next book after that is um, Cave 13, which is actually the 13th Joe Ledger book. It deals with finding of new Dead Sea Scrolls that have uh, among them the secrets of magic used by Pharaoh's magicians in the battle they had with Aaron and Moses. Oh, and, and so basically Isis wants to figure out how to use magic against us. So that's that's the plot of that. I'm I'm doing research now and having a blast. Um, I've got a, a whole bunch of short stories due, including a Sherlock Holmes horror story for one anthology. Um, I'm editing the De a Deadlands anthology right now, um, which is a role playing game. Um, I had done a Deadlands novel. Now I'm doing the anthology and having fun with that. Um, God, I've got seven novels my agent has sold for me that I haven't yet written. So I've got a lot of work ahead of me, plus editing Weird Tales magazine. We have an issue coming out next week uh, with Amakatsu and Fran Wilde, Maurice Broadus, just tons of really great writers. Then the next issue, which actually will come out in June, I believe, um, I, because I you know, gotten a cover quote from Michael Moorcock, I asked him if he would do something for Weird Tales. He gave me an excerpt of the new Elric novel. Neil Gaiman gave me an essay about Neil, about Michael Moorcock for the same issue. And we got just all these cool people. Um, the issue after that, it's a cover story, um, a Hellboy cover story by Chris Golden and Michael and Mike Mignola. Mm -hmm. And then the issue after that, the cover story is going to be a Laurel K. Hamilton, Anita Blake story. Nice. So I am having way too much fun. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, I new projects keep coming at me all the time. Here, here's the thing. It's not that I'm the greatest writer of all time. This, you know, let's, let's, that's not the case. But I'm kind of, you guys are too young to remember this, but there used to be a commercial for Life Cereal with a kid named Mikey. Oh, I, I, I remember it. Yeah. Give it to Mikey. Mikey will, will eat anything. Well, I'm the Mikey of books. I will try anything. And I've had people come at me uh, saying, hey, would you write a story in this world or this theme? And it's outside my comfort zone. My favorite anecdote about this, by the way, is one of the very first stories I, I did that was way outside my comfort zone before I did any YA or middle grade. I had uh, John Joseph Adams had come to me and said, we're doing an Oz anthology. Would you like to write an Oz story? Mm -hmm. Now, 
my first inclination, being a horror writer mostly, is I'm going to write a story where the Tin Man gets the heart of a serial killer and goes on a rampage with his axe. <laughs> that was my first inclination. And it would be a great story, yeah. a fun story to write, but it really wasn't fair to the audience who actually reads Oz. Right. So I ended up sitting down and wrote the story about a little winged monkey girl, because the winged monkeys in the books were actually a sentient race and later enslaved by the witch. A <laughs> uh, little winged monkey girl whose wings were too small for her to fly. So she goes looking for magic traveling shoes that would take her to all the places her wings won't. And even as I'm writing, I'm like, what the fuck is this? It was so far outside of my comfort zone. It was a charming little story. <clears throat> Went in the anthology and I, I'm thinking, well, you know, this is completely absurd that I would write this. When I'm some weeks after the, the uh, some months after the book came out, I got a letter from the estate of El, estate of L. Frank Baum, and I'm thinking, great, they're gonna they're gonna fry me for, for how I mangled Oz. The letter said, um, "We love the story so much. We feel it's in such keeping with Oz. We are adding it henceforth and forever to the chronology of Oz." Oh my gosh! I ugly cried. I mean, that was. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm not even embarrassed that I ugly cried on that one, you know, <laughs> um, and that that's because I, I went outside my comfort zone and thought about who was going to read the story rather than just do something self-indulgent. Mm -hmm. And um, that really told me a lot about how much fun it, a, a, it is to to go outside your comfort zone and B, how much more you can do as a writer when you don't say this is what I do rather than a writer writes. And, you know, since then, all these things have come to me, you know, uh, people keep asking me to try these bizarre genres that I've never done before. So, you know, if somebody were to, to invite me to a romance anthology and the money was good, I'd do it. <laughs> um, I don't, there's not a lot I wouldn't do. Um, I don't think there's actually, I mean, if it was going to be fun, it would be uplifting and fun to write. And there was a paycheck. I'm probably in. And it fits into my schedule. Yeah. Oh, well, we're excited for all the work that you have coming out. We always, you know, root for you and wish you continued success. And Thank we you. appreciate you uh, being on the podcast this evening to talk about Kagan. Well, th this was fun. You guys ask great questions and, you know, you guys are a hoot. So, you know, <laughs> I had a blast. So thank you for inviting me. And that concludes our transmissions for this episode. This episode's bumper was provided by Rena Mason, who we interviewed on last December's, December's transmissions program. Rena is a Bram Stoker Award-winning author of The Evolutionist. She is also a short story writer, having contributed to Attack from the 80s, Black Cranes, Tales of Unquiet Women, and Weird Tales. We wish Rena much continued success this year. For upcoming events, we had a slight delay for April's Fragments episode, so now that will be published on Sunday, May 8th. For that episode, we'll be discussing David Rose's Lovecraft's Iraq. Now, if you listen to episode 49 of HP Lovecast, then you already know that the rest of May will be a themed month where we will focus on music. 
For our 50th episode, we'll be discussing James Wade's short story, The Silence of Erikazan, found in the anthology Disciples of Cthulhu, edited by Edward P. Berglund. That episode will be released Sunday, May 15th. And for our transmissions episode dropping on the last day of the month, we'll continue our focus on music by interviewing musicians who are making Lovecraftian-inspired music. Please contact us if you would like to be a guest on Transmissions. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our website is hplovecast.com, and of course you can email us at hplovecast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and feel free to explore our archives. Consider supporting us by purchasing our books. We each have Amazon author pages with links to all the books we have either edited or contributed to with individual essay chapters. Or, if you feel like donating a dollar or two, we have a coffee account. A link is provided in the show notes. As always, thank you for listening.